It's good to be together this morning. Man, what a wonderful time of worship. So thankful to have an opportunity to sing true things back to God, about God, reminding each other of how great a God we have. We're thankful this morning if you're visiting with us for the first of a few times, uh, we want you to know that you're welcome. Uh, We don't even come close to ever wanting to communicate that we're the only place to be in Greenville. There's some great churches here in town. And we cheer for those churches. We cheer for those ministries. So if this is your one investment at Crosspoint Fellowship, then know that we love you wherever you land. And we consider you a brother and sister if you enjoy our Savior with us. So um, if you are with us this morning, though, and you're trying to figure out who we are, I encourage you to take some time with us. Get to know us as a people and visit a life group or two and get to see what our people are like between Sundays uh, to get to see what... um, how, how these things play out in people's lives is really to make sense of what a church is like. And uh, I encourage you to make the effort to do that. Uh, we're going to begin with prayer this morning, and then we're going to climb into our, our passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's pray. Let me wait, make one comment before we pray. We have little bitty ones in with us on the last Sunday of the month. Not little baby babies, but little, just a little bit... That, Big, bigger kids. I don't want you guys to feel small. Um, and I want kids who are in here who aren't usually in here, I want y'all to really, really work hard at paying attention. And I know how hard it is to sit still, but I'll let you know. I'll give you a little heads up right up front. This isn't a real long sermon, so you can exhale, parents. <laughs> you can thank me later, and um, parents that have little ones in here, uh, I'm praying for you right now as well that you'll... Um, Worship in the pew or worship in the seat by leading your children to listen. So I know that's not easy. And know we have a big margin for that at our church. So let's pray. God, we are thankful for our little ones being in here with us this morning. I want to pray for their little hearts and minds. And we count it a wonderful privilege to have so many little ones tomorrow's church that we have an opportunity to invest in, to equip, to worship with. We count them uh, little blood-bought brothers and sisters and are thankful to have the chance to worship with them this morning. God, I pray for an attentiveness in little hearts and little minds that is characteristic of the Holy Spirit at work. Um, I pray for parents as they, as they work with their little ones in the pew this morning or in the seats that, that they'll be patient, that they will um, give this some time and uh, periodic investments on the last Sunday of the month to let their kids transition to this context in this environment where we sit and um, enjoy um, a message from you. God, I also this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for Grace uh, Church here in town. I want to pray for Steve and Karen Lawson as they're transitioning to a new stage in life. And for Steve, as he is um, stepping away from the pastorate, uh, just uh, thankful for years of ministry there. And um, we pray for their future endeavors, that they are faith and worship-fueled. And uh, we pray for grace as they're going through this transition. We pray for Adam Bryan as he is taking over the lead pastor role. I pray that he is surrounded by men uh, that he is accountable to, that he he doesn't make decisions on his own, but they are are uh, well-sorted, well-vetted among other men that, that you have called. Uh, We do pray for this church in this transition, Lord. We pray that they would uh, seek your face, that they would um, give each other a lot of margin as they're going through transition and uh, change. Uh, I pray that those, those, um, whatever way that we can come alongside grace in this transition, that we'll be attentive to that. Whether it's just an informal encouragement at, at a workplace that we're lifting them up or whether it's official this morning as we pray for them. Uh, and everything in between. We pray that we'll be faithful in that. God, also this morning, we are thankful that you have brought the Keelings home safe and sound. And um, just so thankful that you've protected them and kept them safe as they've made quite a journey. And uh, we're just celebrating having them with us. We continue to pray that you would put on others in our body, put on hearts and minds a burden for those who don't know you and aren't walking with the people in the far corners of the far southern corner and tip of Mexico. I would pray that uh, you would, at some point in your timing, redeploy the Keelings with other teammates and that they would be the church uh, in Teopisca. 
God, we turn this time over to you. We look forward to what you have in store. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm in Ephesians. We're ending in Ephesians this morning. I only have a few satellites for you this morning, so I'll, I'll just mention what those are. Uh, we're beginning in Hebrews 12. A couple of little satellites to note if you are a note taker. Uh, if you're not, I encourage that. It's helpful. Um, but maybe jot these down and maybe go ahead and put a bookmark in those pages. Deuteronomy 29, Revelation 2, 2 Peter 2, and Galatians 5. Deuteronomy 29, Revelation 2, 2 Peter 2, and Galatians 5. And um, this may be a good point to just let folks know, if you're here for the first of a few times, you need your Bible in these next few minutes. I, there are some places where I don't have you turn to every place that I reference, but I do like to have some occasions where you're looking at what is written there. I don't really have a bunch of you know, funny, interesting stories to tell. That's not what I do when I preach. I don't um, have anything anecdotal. Very seldom do I do anything like that unless it's exposing a passage. So we're here to understand the Bible, okay, not to hear funny stories from anybody. So um, that's how we approach preaching. So I'll share with you a little bit of intro. This is like the lamest intro in history, but it is, it's an intro. When I was growing up, I grew up in central Louisiana and went to church at First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana. I said I don't tell any stories, and here I am telling a story. It's just intro, so give me, give me some margin. All right. When I was growing up, I really don't think it's the church's fault, and I don't think it's my parents' fault, but my sum and total of my understanding of Christianity was we don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss. This big pregnant silence, I want to just sit for a minute. That was what I understood Christianity to be. I confess that I need a Savior. Jesus is my Savior. I'm a sinner. I'm saved in that faith step, and he forgives me of my sins, brings me into fellowship with God. I understood all those things at the age of six. But from that point on, all the way through my college experience, the sum and total of my Christianity was don't drink, don't smoke, and and don't cuss. In fact, I wasn't even part of a church family when I was going through college at Texas A&M. It wasn't until my fifth year and Christy and I started dating that we started going to church and attending a church somewhere. All the way through college. But I didn't drink, smoke, or cuss. <laughs> it wasn't part of a church family. It's such a real small, it's such a small and unappealing Christianity if you think about it. You know, the irony there is you couple a, such a small and tiny view and understanding of what Christianity is with an encouragement to evangelize, and then you're like, what are you am I inviting people into? Come follow Jesus so you don't drink, smoke, or cuss anymore. <laughs> what a lame Christianity. One of the things that I'm enjoying about Hebrews and this morning as we, and, and as we continue on in Hebrews is it's developing so much more to faith than a tiny little small, and again, I can't, I don't know who to blame. It's probably just my own fault. Nobody to blame necessarily. Hebrews is rounding out a real robust picture of what it means to be a Christian. And it's good to know that our faith journey is so much better and so much more than these often tiny little representations or understandings of what it means to be a Christian where we are, if I could summarize where we are in one sentence in Hebrews 12 and what's happened before this point for us as a church over the last two or three years, in light of having the perfect high priest in Christ and in light of his perfect sacrifice of himself, here the Hebrews preacher, where we're going this morning, is calling his people to faithful movement with some really practical stuff. We're not talking about notions today. We're talking about real things that we can and should do and be as the church. We're only looking at two verses today in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 14 and 15. And I titled the message this morning, Enduring Peace. It's not the only thing to be said on peace, but there is something to be said on peace this morning from this passage, and then, and then more. That's not all that's going to be considered this morning. But let me read our passage, and let me share with you a plan for the morning. I'm going to read our passage. I'm going to unpack the luggage a little bit. It's really a pretty tidy little unpacking. 
the Hebrews preachers helped us out being real linear here, so it won't be real messy. And then after we unpack it, we're going to consider three applications in light of what's in these passages. Chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now I'm going to break this down into two parts, verse 14 and 15, and just consider there's a verb that starts in verse 14, and then a participle that starts, the little participle phrase that starts verse 15. And those are our guides for unpacking these two passages. First of all, the verb in verse 14 is strive. This verb is a plural verb. It means that he's writing here to the church that the church should all be about this thing of striving, this effort of striving. Another way to to, uh, define that word would be to pursue, that all should be striving, all should be pursuing And it's brought out with that next phrase, strive for peace with everyone. Oftentimes, this passage is approached as in have peace with everyone. That's not what's being said here. It's not have peace between one another. That's implied. What's being emphasized here is strive along with everyone. That's the way that passage should read. Strive for peace along with everyone, that the whole church is about this work of striving. It's for everybody. It's also a present tense verb, means that it's ongoing. It's something that takes place in the church as a continuous action of striving. And lastly, that verb is an imperative. It means it's like a command. Like if if the Hebrews preacher could shout, he'd be shouting right here, strive, all of you, Every one of you pursue right now, every day, all day. And then he goes to two things that we should be doing. Strive after two things. And the first of those two is peace. And the second of those two is holiness. I want to consider peace just for a moment. Peace, as you, your, your mind probably goes to things like harmony and concord, those, those are good mind references for the word peace. Peace is not a real complicated word in our Bibles. It's not something that we have uh, one author using one way in one place and another one using another way in another place. I thought a nice little reference for me in helping me understand this peace is the peace that Jesus offered and gave oftentimes after he healed someone. Listen to these couple of passages in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 50. After, he, after Mary, we believe, Mary has anointed him with oil, he says to the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He does this throughout the book of Luke. Later on in the book, in chapter 8, he heals this lady who had an issue of blood for a long period of time. And at the end of his engagement with her, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This word means undisturbed. To be undisturbed is one way of thinking of this peace. And think about how disturbed these people were before they came to Jesus, before Jesus healed them, or before Jesus ministered to them, and how they left afterwards. Undisturbed. Go in peace. I thought about maybe this lady that had this issue of blood for her whole life or for some extended period of time, how peaceful she must have felt after she's healed by Jesus, how undisturbed. And think about how I feel sometimes after I've been sick for a day or two. Man, the grass is green, isn't it? Music just sounds good. When you, you've had a fever or something and that goes away, you're like, man, life is good. I love y'all. <laughs> Christy, kids, come here, let's hug. No, you've been sick. Get away from me. That feeling of peace, of being undisturbed, that harmony and discord, that's what's being encouraged here. Strive for those things with one another, along with one another. How we feel after we've been with Jesus and after he's touched you and healed you, that sort of peace. 
Now, the holiness that's mentioned here that we should strive after is not the substance that I mentioned last week. If you were here last week and you noted in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, we were, this is embedded within a section that's talking about suffering and what happens through suffering and what God does for his children whom he loves through suffering. One of those outcomes is that we share in his holiness. He, he gives us a, a, a share of his character as we go through suffering. That's not what's being talked about here. I used the word last week as substance. We share in the substance of holiness. That's not what's being talked about in this word holiness. It's a different word. It has the same root, but it's a different word. This word for holiness here has to do with an action of holiness. It has to do, it's describing something that involves action. What he's talking about here is like an ethic of holiness, like pursuing and living in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's talking about striving for peace with one another and striving for holiness, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, living in a way that reflects the character of a holy God, living in a way that reflects the way you've been reckoned as sanctified and holified. It's interesting thinking about the beauty of these two things, the Hebrews preacher takes them to something that's sort of horizontal. Peace, pursuing, striving for peace as a command along with one another, and then striving for holiness. One is horizontal and one is vertical. It's beautiful and tidy and tight. I was thinking, too, about how, these, how this passage flows and what's being encouraged here. And my mind may be just a thinking about uh, sort of American thoughts this week and went and saw a, a movie recently that was very, very patriotic. My mind went to our certain unalienable rights that are written into our Declaration of Independence, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That phrase is familiar to all of us, likely, or to most of us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If that is the American way, then the Christian way, though, is life and liberty through the perfections of a wonderful high priest, and as a response to that, the pursuit of peace and holiness. That's a good way to remember what's going on in this passage. Life and liberty, because what Christ has done for you, so then we respond with the pursuit of peace and holiness. Now let's look at verse 15. Verse 14 is tidy. Strive for two things, peace and and holiness. Now, verse 15, the key phrase there, the phrase that begins that passage is see to it. That's not a verb there, that's a participle with sort of, sort of a verbal noun. It has verbal sort of action involved with it, and it too is plural. It too involves everyone. If all are to strive for peace and holiness, all are to be about this seeing to it. It's also not only being plural, it has imperative force because it's coupled with strive. It would be also like a command, see to it, a command for all the church to be about, according to this passage and the one that we'll look at next week, three things. See to first that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We'll talk about this in a minute. Second, see to it that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. And the third thing that we'll look at next week is see to it that no one becomes an apostate due to sexual sin. We're going to be talking about sexual sin next week and sexual immorality. Today we're just going to look at these first two things to see to. But together I want you to see what's going on here. These phrases with the see to it give the same force as three purpose clauses. The, these You hear me talk about henna clauses often, these purpose clauses, in order that or so that. That's the force of what's being said here, what's, what's going on here. It's implying that the church together, as we together, are seeing to it that together proper watching and vigilance can prevent these three, three, three things that are going on in this passage. I want you to hear this, folks. I want you to hear this church. 
that together the church can be vigilant, seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do you realize that you have that opportunity and really we could say that power in people's lives? That you can see to something that something is so profound, you want to have some purpose and meaning in life, how about right there? Man, you can get a great job, you can do some cool things, you can be about some awesome endeavors, you want to be about something eternal, how about together seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God as a purpose if you are vigilant and you are watching? How about seeing to it that no bitter root grows up, causes trouble, and defiles many? And how about seeing to it together that no one is apostate through sexual immorality? Man, this is implying that proper watching by the church, proper vigilance by the church, proper care and involvement by the people of God can prevent these things. When this hit me, I was like, man, I'm blown away by that. I swallowed really hard. What I want you to realize here is that we, the church, and our seeing to it are the means in which a sovereign God holds people in the faith. We, a seeing to it church, are the means in which a sovereign God sustains people in the faith. We are the means in which he helps people see through the work that he began. What a profound meaning is given us right there. What a profound truth for us to consider that we together, if we are seeing to it and are involved in each other's lives in meaningful ways, that as a purpose, God can do these things. Man, that's meaningful. If you need identity and purpose, that's a good one right there. I said we're only going to talk about two of these three things that we are to see to this morning. The first of those two is see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now that passage right there could be rewritten, rephrased, or a way to think of it. See to it that no one forfeits grace. Now, I don't know where your mind goes as you hear that. See to it that no one forfeits grace. I wanted to use the scriptures to make sense of that. So Galatians 5 is a place that I went to, a place where a people were, had the potential of missing out on grace by relying on their performance. And every single one of you, every single one of us, have the potential to do the very same thing. The Galatian church, see, somebody had snuck into the Galatian church and bewitched them by preaching a message of grace plus something. And in their case, it was grace plus circumcision. Yeah, there's grace to be saved, but you also have to be circumcised to be saved. And man, Paul comes after them with knife in hand. Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, as in accepting it as grace plus something, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And he says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. Man, see to it, church, that nobody tries to add something to grace. See to it, church, that we are that involved in each other's lives that we know if somebody in their mind is thinking, I've got to do this to be saved. Or we can help them see to it, man, don't forfeit grace. It's grace plus nothing. Grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Man. See to it that no one fails to forfeit grace. And the second thing, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up. Deuteronomy chapter 29 is where I'd like for you to go. This is the clue to making sense of this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now, let me encourage you. This is the last little section of unpacking these two verses. And then we have three things to apply. Hang in there through this little section. This is really important. It's going to help our application. Deuteronomy 29 is a passage that's going to help us make sense of what he's talking about. We need to see to. And let me encourage you too. This was written to the Hebrews church, and this is timeless. 
And this applies to us. It's written to the church, period. These are things that you and I should be striving for, peace and holiness, and things that you and I should be seeing to. If you were sitting in a meeting with God speaking directly to you right now and saying, here's what I expect of you. Put aside the don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, and do these things instead. Would you be paying attention? That's what we're doing this morning. This is what we're striving for, and this is what we're seeing to. This second thing, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up. The way we interpret this passage is looking at Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. Moses is recording these things before they go into the promised land. Moses has spent 40-something years with these jokers, a tough 40. And he's looking on this Nebo, and he's looking over into the promised land, and he's recording these words, and they're words of charge, words of encouragement. And here's what he says to the people of God in chapter 29. Beware, people of God, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, a clan who, a tribe who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. This If this is left to continue, this root of bitterness will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. That's like a Deuteronomy version of what's being said over here in in chapter 12 of Hebrews. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it defiles many. What we can make sense of from this passage is we can understand and identify what he's talking about here is not just someone being bitter. We all experience bitterness from time to time for whatever reason. He's not talking about some person being just kind of bitter. He's talking about a person here. This root of bitterness is not an attitude, but a person, or in this case, a clan, or maybe even a whole tribe that has now thumbed their nose at God thumb their nose at the people of God, and they're going to do whatever they're going to do and say, I'm going to be fine. Man, it's much more robust than some little old lame attitude. It is a person, a person moving in a way that not might cause trouble, will cause trouble, that not may defile some, will defile many. A couple of examples. This is important, so we're spending a little bit more time on this point. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This gal is a great example. She's just such a good example. I don't want to pass up on her. The letters to the churches in Revelation are wonderful because they cover the gamut of where churches might land. There's seven of them. And it's almost as if in seven... They cover all the possibilities. And the church at Thyatira had some great things going for it, but they had some issues, and one in particular. Listen to what happens here, what's being said to this church if they're getting a report card. In chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works, church in Thyatira, your love and your faith and your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, you're, you're being vigilant. You're being, di- a better word, diligent. You're being faithful in God-honoring things. But I have this against you. You tolerate that bitter root, that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She's not walking around saying, I'm the bitter root. Y'all beware. Beware, I got this black hat on. Identify me. She's going around calling herself a prophetess. Identifying herself maybe as God's gift to you. I'm going to come into your life and give you some good stuff. She's calling herself a prophetess. And she's on the offensive. She's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
She's a beautiful example of what's being described here as the bitter root. And this church, Thyatira, they had some great things going for him. But he says, I have this against you. You tolerate this bitter root. You're not seeing to it. You're not together seeing to it. This woman who's calling herself a prophetess. Verse 21, it says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And guess, she's, guess what? She's turning the hearts and defiling many because that's what bitter roots do. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. The reason I'm giving this some time is because this is a church issue. We're not talking about notions. We're talking about people. We're talking about people with names. Hers was Jezebel. That's an easy one, right? You hear the name Jezebel, you're like, oh, culturally, she's a bad, bad gal. I noticed none of you are naming your children Jezebel. It's not a very popular kid's name, (laughs) right? They're not all that obvious. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 17, these, if we want to insert what's being talked about here, these roots of bitterness, these roots of bitterness are waterless springs and mists driven by storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. A great example. He's talking about real people. He doesn't name any names here like the Revelation chapter 2 passage did. But you've got to know what's being described here. What's being described here in Hebrews chapter 12 are real people. This is not just an ancient problem. We're not just talking about the Hebrews church. Yeah, back in the old days over there in the Hebrew church, they had roots of bitterness. Yeah, back over in the the Roman Empire when Peter was alive, they had these roots of bitterness, these waterless springs. Yeah, over there in Thyatira, they had old Jezebel. Ever heard her back in the ancient days? We're talking about now. This is a church issue. This is a church problem because these roots of bitterness are not a new thing. They're 2,000 years old. And in fact, we got to know Deuteronomy was written about 1,500 years before that, 1,460 or so. And apparently there's such thing as a root of bitterness then as well that will turn the hearts of the people and affect the dry and the moist as well. Remember how that passage read. We're studying an ancient letter and an ancient sermon written to an ancient church, but the people are no different and the church is no church, no different because we're still the church. Sinful and unrepentant folk can and do go to church. And they can and do contaminate and pollute others. Some of the language in those two passages, if you were paying attention, seduce. Seduce, that was the word that was used in Revelation 2 for Jezebel. She's seducing. That's, she's working at it. And people are getting fooled. She's seducing. Over there in 2 Peter, the word was entice. You got to know root of bitterness is not going to sit idle. It's going to work at defiling many. These folks have names, not easy ones like Jezebel. They might have a name like Tom. I don't. I was trying to think of names of people that aren't at Crosspoint. I don't know of any Toms. If I do, I forgot about you. I'm sorry. I'm not saying it's you. Sally. I don't think we have any Sallys that I know of. Hope not. Sorry, Sally, if you're here today visiting. Man, I want you to know, too, that these roots of bitterness, they can be so enticing and so seducing. They can be so inclusive and make you feel like you are really pretty awesome. I've seen it happen. It happens today. This is not a new problem. 
And two, in addition to making you feel really awesome, they can make you feel like those who are loving you biblically are really just a bunch of Pharisees. And really that they're out to get you. And really they're just in it for themselves. And they're about things like control. They just want to control everything. That's what the Jezebel is communicating to you today. And some of you have those in your lives right now and you don't even know it. We're not talking about an old problem that we somehow outgrew of in the church or outgrew in the church. We are talking about a problem today. And you would be naive to think that this doesn't still go on. And I promise you, this problem finds a sad home in unsuspecting churches, unsuspecting people, unsuspecting clans and tribes. And it will eat your lunch. It will defile many. It has destroyed many a church. Many a church that wasn't seeing to it. I want you to know, Cross Point Fellowship, this, visitors, you should know this too. When you come and you meet with an elder to talk through membership stuff, you know, we're glad to meet with you. It's really pretty cool. We're asking to hear your testimonies and hear your story and hear what your understanding is of church. And you don't have all, have all the perfect answers if some of you are like, oh, I don't have all the answers to that. But one of the things we're doing there as we talk with you is to try and discern whether or not you are a root of bitterness. And this may be, I may be alarming to you. I don't know. It ought to be comforting to you. You should know that there are some people who have tried to join this church that we have not let them join this church. That sound unchristian? It's Christian. <laughs> it's what the church does. We're supposed to be discerning about a Jezebel. We're supposed to be discerning about Tom and Sally. We're supposed to be looking for that to protect the bride. We're supposed to be seeing to it. Not just proactively. Not just forecasting out as the elders meet with potential members. But as the church together as a whole, this is what we see to. We'll talk in a moment about how this might play out. But just know that it's not unchristian. This is Christian at its finest. It's unchristian to just let it go. It's unchristian to let your church family be destroyed by defilement, by a root of bitterness that's just going to tear it apart. That's unchristian. Now, three things. You've done the hard work this morning. The three things that I would offer as application to fellow runners who are enduring and running the race that come from this passage. First, it's work, apparently, to live at peace with one another. Peace is work. I want you to know and hear up front that God, through Christ, made peace between the most unlikely of folks. Jews and Gentiles. You couldn't find any two people groups any more different than a Jew and a Gentile. And there's a whole book that's nearly the entire book is dedicated to that, the book of Ephesians, about how the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down through his body. He won peace for us, but you need to know that it is work to walk in that victory. It is work to walk in that victory. We have to strive and we have to pursue it. Because we don't naturally move in the direction of peace. And we don't naturally stay at peace with one another. There's nothing new under the sun and church conflict is 2,000 years old. Hence the command. Strive for peace. Pursue peace. And here's the encouragement to me. That it's not just the elder's job. It's not just the deacon's job. Remember, this is a plural verb. Strive along with everyone for peace. Being plural and present means that it's ongoing and it's something that we're all supposed to be about. We're all to strive for peace. But unfortunately, and if you've been around the church context for any period of time, unfortunately, folks often bail when conflict arises and go start over somewhere else. And what's really even sad on top of that is often what's attached to that notion is, well, I'm going to do the Christian thing and just avoid the whole conflict and just go move, just, just quietly, 
peacefully. That word is used way wrong right there. Peacefully go find another church. Because that situation is just too hard and too messy. And folks often bail, and when conflict arises, and they start over till the next conflict. And then the next conflict, they're on to the next place. And here's the sad part. is folks bail oftentimes when it's just getting good. <laughs> folks bail oftentimes when it's just getting good. When you're just getting to the place where you can learn how to receive grace because you need it because you've been a horse's behind. It's just getting good when you learn to get to the place where you need to give gobs of grace. 70 times 7. Oh, man, this again. Bob has done it again. Oh, I'm so tired of him. I want to move on to another church. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply the salve of grace and forgiveness in that context. The gospel means it. It's just getting good. Yet, folks, so often we'll do the Christian thing and walk away from conflict and miss out on moving through it in a God-honoring way. What I want you to hear this morning at this first point is running the race faithfully means working through conflict with each other, pursuing peace, striving for peace with one another. To me, not smoking, drinking, or cussing is a whole lot easier than that. This is hard. It's not hard to not smoke, drink, or cuss. You just don't buy it. And you just watch it. Oh, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say what I'm thinking. That's easy. This is hard. Some of you are in conflict right now, and I'm, you need to hear this. We're not talking about notions today. We're talking about real practical movement in response to Christ as your high priest. Pursuing peace with somebody that you may have conflict with. Striving for it because he commanded it. Here's some ways to help as you go about that. The daily pursuit of peace along with the people in the church. First of all, this is just one thing that I find helpful is what I call touch-based questions. I do this with my friends and they do it with me sometimes. Where they just like, hey, hey, I just want to touch base. Are we okay I'm kind of sensing a little, little something, something, but it may just be the beans I ate yesterday. I want to make sure. If it wasn't the beans I ate yesterday, are we okay? Man, that's striving for it. That's pursuing it. That's leaning forward. That's being on the offensive in the right direction and pursuing peace with one another. Because oftentimes you'll get this response, no, man, it must be the beans. <laughs> but then sometimes you'll get the response, yes, I'm glad you said something. Man, that hurt me so much yesterday. I wish you hadn't done that. And you have a chance to go, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> or you have a chance to go, oh, let me explain. And then peace is made through God honoring conflict. Some other tips involved with this pursuit of peace with one another is you need to have a willingness to share when offenses are more than overlookable. Oftentimes, the Christian mindset about conflict is that you should just overlook all offense. But, you know, some offenses are not overlookable. Some are bigger than that. Some are big enough to where you need to say, dude, you hurt me here. This hurt my feelings. This offended me. You need to have a willingness to share when offenses are more than overlookable, to give that person an opportunity to account for it, and that person to learn from that, and that person to grow for that. If you don't have the courage to do that, then ask God for the gentle courage, and that's what I would call it, the gentle courage to let someone know when they've offended you in a way that was more than overlookable. You have a treat in store about 90% of the time when you do that. Sometimes it'll go south. I'm not going to make you promises. But man, I'm going to tell you what. It's better than just sitting on it. And it's better than just leaving and moving on and finding a new relationship or a new friendship or acting cool until you just forget about it. What a great opportunity to apply the gospel. Another tip is that you need to have the humility to hear that you've offended if you need to have the gentle courage to share if you've been offended, then you also need to couple that with a disposition among the people of God where we have the humility to hear that you've offended, even if you didn't mean to. 
That last phrase is usually the caveat for people like, man, now, if I really meant to offend you, then I would apologize for it, but I didn't mean to, so it must be your problem. Instead of having this humble disposition, it says, man, I've offended you. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please, no, I didn't intend to. But if you felt it, then it matters. You matter. You're not a Martian. You're talking about the gospel being applied. You're talking about the salve of forgiveness applied and reconciliation. And it's beautiful. When a church is moving in this way, it's beautiful. Another thing that I want to encourage is the eagerness to administer the sweet salve of forgiveness. To forgive one another as you have been forgiven. See, not drinking, smoking, and cussing is really easy, isn't it? But this is better. This is better to extend forgiveness as you've been forgiven. I cannot recommend any stronger than this. If, if I, I don't know how I could recommend it any stronger. The book by Ken Sandy, The Peacemakers. It's one of the best books that I have ever read as a worshiper. It's not a pastoral book. It is a Christian instrument. It, it, God, God will use it to bless your relationships, to bless your family, to bless your marriage, to bless your ministry, to bless, to bless everything that you're part of. If I could have three books, it'd be the Bible, it'd be Ken Sandy's Peacemakers, and Pilgrim's Progress in, in regular English, because I can't understand the old. What a great book. I urge you. If you've read and hearing some of this stuff this morning, you're like, man, that sounds good. I don't really know how to do any of that kind of stuff, though. Go get that book. And you can also go through training. You go for a weekend, and you go away, and they'll train you. It costs you a little something, and if that cost is prohibitive, let Crosspoint help you with that. We will send you to be part of something like that, to have folks in our body who are equipped to help people in a God-honoring way work through conflict so that people don't just divorce and just church hop terminally. Oh, man, that's striving for peace. That's pursuing peace. And here's the really cool thing. When the church is doing this well, when the church is working at this and striving at this, then we're salty, bright, and aromatic. You hear that? Then we're salty and bright and aromatic. The best preaching in the world is a clanging cymbal if it's to a church and with a church that is not good at peacemaking. And has no desire to peacemake. The best music in the world, the best worship and song in the world is a clanging cymbal and a gong if we're not great at peacemaking with one another. Having the courage, the gentle courage to say, you've offended me. Having the humility to say, please let me know if I've offended you. And being quick to extend forgiveness as you've been forgiven. Man, then we are salty, bright, and aromatic. And our community looks at the church and says, these people know how to work through conflict. Do you think the church in our community has that reputation to those who aren't in the church? That's a sad, heartbreaking question. Do you think the church in our community as a whole has a reputation for being great, to be as being the go-to people for how to work through conflict? We don't, but we could, and we should, and we could work at this, we could hope for this, we could pray toward this. What if our community looked to the church and said, these folks relentlessly love each other even when it's really hard? How cool if our community was looking at us like that. These folks love each other when it's really hard and somehow they're relentless with each other and then they come out the other side of these things called conflicts closer than they were before the conflict. To God be the glory. I want some of that. What if people that didn't know the Lord were seeing what's going on in the church and the church had a reputation? These people know how to work through conflict so well. What I want you all to hear this morning is this. The church is the demonstration to our community that the new age is here. That the kingdom of God has come. That the prince of peace is in fact the prince of peace. We are to be the walking, living, breathing illustration of that. 
We should be a dynamic, living reflection of the peace that will be characteristic of God's eventual reign on earth. We're to be a little wee, daily, living pocket of that to our little world here in Greenville and Hunt County. Man, what a sweet... You want purpose and identity? You want meaning? How about let's start there? What a great purpose to be great at this. Leaving church conflict isn't God-honoring or noble. It's not God-honoring or noble. This is a really hard thing to say to you because the pastor in me wants everybody to be here. I mean, even though we're praying for other churches at the beginning of each worship services, I'm made of the same stuff you are, and I want everybody to come to Cross Point. I have to fight that urge. So here's, here's some ways I fight that with statements like this. If you're visiting here this morning because you're coming from conflict at some other church, maybe the most God-honoring thing that could happen in your life is that you were equipped for something this morning that you go back and go do to the glory of God. Maybe you're not supposed to come to this church. Maybe you're just supposed to come here today to hear that this is what the church does, that we strive for peace with one another. And maybe you've been convicted this morning that, oh, man, I need to go back and strive because it's what the church does. It's who the church is. And I left when it was just getting good. Maybe some of you are members here and you need to go back and clean some stuff up. How about that notion? And maybe even some of you are members here, but you're so convicted that you left so poorly, not for theological reasons, but for conflict reasons, that the Lord actually mobilizes you to go back. How about that? Talk about to God be the glory. Talk about that's not building any kingdoms or not, not building any, any uh, big mega churches. That's just the church being the church in our community. That's showing our community what the gospel looks like in, with real people, among real stories, among real weeks. It's not just a notion, but real people working through and doing hard things like that. Man, that's salty, bright, and aromatic. The second and third things are much briefer. I want to spend more time on that, much more brief. Second thing application from this, these two verses. First was that the pursuit of peace is work. Here's the second one. The pursuit of holiness is work. The pursuit of holiness is work, and without it, heaven is a pipe dream. I want you to hear that. Heaven is a pipe dream. Now, I want to define a phrase. You may have heard that phrase, pipe dream, before. Here's what pipe dream is. A fanciful or impossible plan or hope. It alludes to dreams produced by smoking an opium pipe. That's where it comes from. Isn't that funny? But to think that you're going to see the Lord, if there's no pursuit of holiness in your life, that's a pipe dream. Listen to what's being said here. I mean, really listen to it. Maybe for the first time in your life, listen to this and come under severe conviction maybe. You might be like the guy over there in Deuteronomy chapter 29 doing whatever you want to do, saying, I'm safe. You can hear him see him. I'm safe. But listen to what's being said here. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That word strive, that's your verb. That's my verb. That's what we are doing in response to what we have been reckoned. Let that hit you for a moment. You should both know that your salvation is based wholly and completely on Christ's perfections and holiness. Hear and know that. And know that the fruit of your salvation is the pursuit of holiness. 
Hear and know that the fruit of that salvation, if true, is the pursuit and the growth in holiness. What's funny to me is sometimes there's the thought that, man, that sounds like there's some sort of work involved. And if there's work involved, then it must not be real. The sort of overstraining one passage and undervaluing other passages leads to thoughts like that. If there's work involved, it must be real. Well, I want you to think about that. Would you say that about your marriage? If there's work involved, it must be real. Would you say that about parenting? If there's work involved, it must not be real. If there's work involved in the pursuit of holiness, then it must not be real. Man, I'm going to tell you, it's work. It is work. And if we are to bear a message of a new king and a new kingdom ethic and a coming kingdom, but we don't reflect that kingdom ethic, what does James say about it? He says, we're dead. Faith without works is just plain old dead. Look at Galatians 5. It's the last place I'm having you turn this morning. Galatians 5. I mean, I'm just telling you, when I consider truths like this, I just hope there's some people out there that are just going, wait a second, I've never really considered this before. I just really hope that the Holy Spirit is working some things in some folks this morning that they're not, everybody's thinking about lunch, not everybody's thinking about, okay, I got this. I hope, in fact, that everybody in some measure is swallowing hard saying, okay, am I just thinking, ah, I'm safe. Like that joker over in 20, Deuteronomy 29. Or am I coming in contact with really hard truths like this? Apart from the pursuit of holiness, no one will see the Lord. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If that wasn't exhaustive enough, he ends it with, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, you could develop that do is continue in such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are not striving and pursuing holiness will not see the Lord. And those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This holiness is so essential to the journey of faith. Without it, you'll not see the Lord. And the work in pursuing holiness is not saving work. You need to hear it. You need to know it. It's responding work that marks the true believer. It's what believers do. And oh, again, in case you missed it, it's work. And the third thing is the seeing to it. The first was holiness or peace should be pursued and that's work. The second is that holiness is work. And the third is the seeing to it. And here's the point about seeing to it. Seeing to it is the hardest thing I've ever done. As a worshiper, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father. Seeing to things is the hardest thing I've ever done. Because those things are just easier to ignore. They're easy to ignore. Seeing to stuff is the hardest thing I've ever done because it's work too. And remember, though, here's the good thing for the church is it's a plural participle. It means that we're all to be seeing to it. It's not just elders, not just deacons. It's not even just life group shepherds. It's something that the church should be doing and be about as an entire body. It's something we're all to be involved in, and it will often feel lonely, and that's because few are actually willing to step off into the hard work of seeing to it. First of all, in regards to forfeiting grace, 
If you see someone moving in a way, if you get to know someone to the point where you see that they are moving in a way, however noble it may seem, where they are adding something to grace and their understanding of salvation, you need to see to rounding that out for them and setting them free. They've been bewitched. You need to see to setting them free and realizing that we have wonderful, absolute life and liberty in Christ and that that's not part of their salvation, that whatever they've added to it. If you see someone living by grace plus something, then you're to see to it. You are. (laughs) You are. And if you're to see someone living in unrepentant sin, if you're to see someone moving in a way that looks like a bitter root and do nothing about it, you must know that it not might cause trouble, it will cause trouble, and you must know that it will defile many because that is contagious. That pollution, that defilement is contagious. I was thinking about this last encouragement and realizing this is what's really hard about seeing to a root of bitterness. You can't see to a root of bitterness without getting some of it on you. And I'm not talking about roots anymore. I'm talking about what you get on the bottom of your shoes. You can't see to a root of bitterness without it getting nasty and getting hard and getting smelly, and getting difficult, and it's going to be hard for you. What's easier is just to avoid it. I understand. But seeing to a root of bitterness, something we should all be about, means that you're going to step into a situation and confront a brother or sister or a tribe or a clan, and it's going to be hard, I guarantee, in the words of Justin Wilson, I guarantee It's not a maybe. It will be the hardest thing you've ever done. But it's a hopeful trouble that you brought on yourself. It's a hopeful trouble that knows that you're helping potentially this wayward brother or sister and you could actually restore them to the faith. Or you're helping the church. You're doing one or the other. So it's a hopeful trouble that you brought on yourself by stepping into this thing, by seeing to it. I thought that Galatians passage was nice. Here we are seeing these things, that these sins, this vice list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, this pretty, pretty hefty list here. And chapter 6 begins with these words, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should see to it. It doesn't say that, but it could. You who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness. And keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what God's people do. It's not an unchristian thing to step off into confronting someone who's moving in a way that looks like the root of bitterness. It's what God's people are called to do. We are to see to it. The supper this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2. The supper this morning is going to consider the ultimate peacemaker. We've talked about making peace in very difficult situations. We talk about pursuing peace. We're talking about seeing to some things that are really hard. So this morning as we take the supper together, we're going to consider the most difficult scenario, the worst of enemies, And the consummate peacemaker. Listen to this passage from Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse, verse 14. For he himself. This is for emphasis. He himself is our peace. Who made us both. He's talking at that point Jew and Gentile. You could insert husband and wife. Parent and child, brother, sister, the, uh, the Hatfield McCoy. You could put them in there. Put, put the most difficult combination of people together, known to man. Put them in there. And the potential is through the work of Christ, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create him in himself one new man in place of the two 
so making peace. And this is how he did it. And he might reconcile us both to God, all of us being enemies of God. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If we're going to talk about peace today, we've got to talk about the ultimate peacemaker. And we've got to talk about how he achieved it. It was expensive. And it was hard. And it was work. We remind ourselves of this each week as we take this supper of a broken body. You got to know it was work. You got to know there was effort involved. So if you've heard some things today, you're like, man, these sound like they're hard work. Be reminded as we take the supper of the hardest work that's ever been done and how well it was done. And from that resource, then we go do our work. Let me pray and we'll distribute the elements. God, I am so thankful for a God who pursued peace with us. I'm so thankful for a God that pursued peace to the extent that he sent, that you sent your only son for us. And that that peace was wrought and bought with blood. God, I pray this reality will galvanize this people this morning to be salty, bright, and aromatic by striving for peace and holiness and by seeing to, seeing to the reality that nobody misses out on grace and that no root of bitterness defiles many. God, I pray we would be faithful in this. I pray the Holy Spirit would work this in us. It's not something we can muster, so we beg for this. God, I pray this morning, if there's somebody in this body that's sitting here convicted over some conflict they may have bailed out on just before it was getting good, that you will arrest them with the opportunity. That they will swallow hard considering the work, but more than anything, they'll be arrested by the opportunity to apply forgiveness or to ask for forgiveness and to be reconciled, to walk out the gospel, God, I beg for that, even if it means a smaller cross point, but a stronger church in Greenville. God, we are so thankful for this truth we've considered this morning. Two small passages, such wonderful ways to respond to our perfect high priest. We enjoy him this morning more than anything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.